Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Today I'm speaking with Mark Glover, Country Manager Australia and New Zealand for Metadata. Mark Glover joined Metadata in December 2018 and is based in Sydney. He's said to be passionate about the healthcare industry in all its facets. He's been an active member and industry contributor, having been a member of Oz Biotech, Medicines Australia, and Medical Technology Association of Australia. But what I particularly like about Mark's profile is the recommendation that appears on his website from someone who says, Mark has the ability to make everyone in the organization feel that his or her contribution to the business is important. He shows genuine interest in people and always walks the talk. He's also big on recognizing and rewarding achievements. While it is clear to everyone that we have targets to achieve, working for Mark and supporting his objectives is never a chore, but a pleasure and an honor. I'm delighted to be welcoming Mark Glover as my guest today. I'm very, very pleased to be speaking with you today, Mark. I wanted to start by asking you about your first experience in healthcare. Why are you interested in patient care and why the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, thanks very much. It's uh, great to be um, part of uh, one of your podcasts. Thank you. My history really with medicine is probably actually from my mother, who was a nurse uh, way back. And in fact, her mother was a nurse. And to put it in the Australian context, she trained in Sydney Hospital in 1908 and then went off to Gallipoli with the Anzacs as a nurse and survived Gallipoli and then went on to the UK and married um, an English soldier who she nursed and basically stayed over there. So I've actually come back to my roots from a family point of view and I've had a long connection with healthcare from that point of view. Getting more to how did I get into the industry? Mm -hmm. I did a a biochemistry degree with a pharmacological biased at Cardiff University in South Wales, originally from the UK, uh, and then joined pharmacy, a pharmaceutical company as as a rep. And started my life in dealing with wound care and and when you know a little bit about wound care which is really grotty horrible smelly uh, leg ulcers and bed sores if you've got something that can help manage those patients on a challenging journey because they tend to be slightly more frail tend to be more elderly patients and at the time pharmacy had a, a product which was quite novel in its time But it was really, you know, going into wards and seeing broken down leg ulcers and stuff. You know, healthcare is a special area. For sure. And it sounds like your grandma would have been very much part of that journey with you, uh, at least in spirit, because that's essentially what she did, didn't she? Absolutely. And in fact, on the shelf behind me, I've actually got her, she was first in class and I've got her surgical book that she was awarded as being first in class in 1908 from Sydney Hospital. So there's a little bit of personal history just sitting on behind me. Yeah. So that first job sounds like something that really made an impression on you, you know, wound care, the 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 context of your family. Where where did you go from there and and how did that develop into where you know where you've got to to date? Yeah, I then progress through in reality probably the normal channels of working for a pharmaceutical and medical device companies through the sales sales and marketing uh, and migrated after seven years in the UK and came to Australia nearly 30 years ago now uh, and rejoined the company I was with in in the UK pharmacia 
And in reality, in those uh, days, we were dealing with the first biologics um, because Pharmacia in those days had growth hormone for short stature children. And it was one of the new and the first biologics on the market. But it was really, again, dealing with the science that has developing during the 80s and 90s, which was the ability of healthcare to help start to get towards that personalized biologic medicines. And that obviously leads, you know, and we'll come to it, I'm sure, uh, to where we are nowadays. Mm -hmm. So again, I've worked for companies during that journey, personal career journey, which have been uh, novel R&D orientated companies. Uh, and I've been dealing with biologics and in reality heading towards personalized medicines for 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a fascinating area of health and it makes it more complicated from the patient journey point of view. Yes. Talk about a little bit about the patient journey point of view, because you know you you talk about sales and and the biologics and a lot of the the technical side, but you also talk there about growth hormone for children with short stature. Children with short stature is, a, is quite an issue, isn't it? Really, because they are subject to all sorts of problems. Did you have much to do with the ultimate clients, the ultimate patients who were who were benefiting from your work? I mean, yes, indirectly, as as is often the way with healthcare companies, you you should appropriately stay at arm's length from the individual patients. I mean, that's obviously appropriate from a privacy, privacy, and in you know, a um, area. But that being said, because growth hormone was around and these populations were, they really didn't have much to have prior to growth hormone coming along. And, you know, they're a discriminated population. Uh, and so being able to help these patients get some um, benefit from the medicines that were available, you know, the, the difference it made to those individual patients and in reality, the families of them, the parents of these patients was really important. And, and in those days, you know, growth hormone was just being established. It was well, it was well funded in Australia by the government. And so it did allow the treatment through specialist units. And those specialist units were very patient orientated. And so we became, as, as the company providing growth hormone, very much a partner with them to help those patients be assessed appropriately because at the end of the day, you know, medicines do need to be appropriately used. But once identified, then trying to make that journey as, as possible. And in reality, you know, it's one of those conditions that by the time you, you know, you turn your late teens, you've reached your height that you're going to reach. And hopefully growth hormone in this case had helped those patients achieve what they maximally could. But it was about how they felt about it as well. Yeah. And that's really where I think the growth hormone made a huge difference to giving them confidence. And that's that you know, treatment of patients a lot, I believe, is associated with confidence and comfort an individual patient being treated the best that we can have available to us. Yes. I guess what I'm driving at there really is that for you and your day-to-day -day work, it's it's very much about sales and numbers and markets and all the rest of it. But underneath all of that, there is a desire for, to make a difference to a, a patient, a real person with a real problem. And I'm trying to work out how much of that actually influenced your work and still influences the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Um, and fundamentally, and in fact, I think the 
probably the therapeutic area which has had the greatest influence for me in helping those patient journeys is actually another therapeutic area which has huge discrimination against which is overweight and obesity. And I've been fortunate to work for a couple of companies which have had intervention, surgical and medicines in that patient population. And that's a hugely discriminated patient population. And I have a passion um, to, and I have had a passion over the last 10, 15 years that I've been associated with that therapeutic area um, to be an advocate and try and work with organisations. I was involved in being one of the driving force for Obesity Australia in Australia, um, which was a peak body that was um, being set up by some very eminent scientists and business people to really be the voice of the quiet patient. And obesity patients are hugely discriminated against and government have found it difficult to um, deal with this because it's that um, challenge of, you know, how much is individual, how much is society, how much um, should uh, governments and policies change, and yet the quiet uh, voice of the patient really, these are isolated patients. They don't want to go out and trying to create an environment that it was societally more acceptable has been actually quite a big driver for me over you know, 10, 15 years um, in that space. So in getting them the voice, getting them people who care, and there's a huge amount of work that's been going on in Australia for you know, 25 years. I've just been part of that journey on the way through. Yes. Sadly, as we, as we both know, the rates of obesity have increased exponentially in Australia and, and everywhere else. I think we're number four in OECD countries for rates of obesity. So you're right. In terms of things that you've seen on the horizon, you're in a very special place because you're able to see science marching forward uh, and being brought, being made accessible to the masses. What is the most exciting thing that you see on the horizon at this point in your career from, you know, however many years in this industry? Yeah, I think we are at the very exciting stage that science has got the ability now that we can identify and have been identifying on a mass basis uh, at a genetic level, um, biomarkers, bringing the science of the 21st century and translating that into um, medicines and interventions for patients effectively. And the uh, precision medicine, as the language is being used, obviously nowadays, you know, meaning that we can get really get down to an individual level to help them be treated with or without interventions. And as much as um, science is helping us identify which patients should be treated, it's actually also ensuring that we don't treat patients who won't get any benefit. Yeah. And from a societal point of view and the economics of healthcare, I actually think that's a really good story to tell that um, you know, doctors, nurses, researchers can now to say this intervention will work for this patient population. And so you, with, a, with a much higher degree of certainty, and that's got to be a good thing. And I think there is that drive across our research environment to allow us 
to get close to having very personalised medicine at a scientific level. The challenge is the economics around that. Mm. Look, my ear is completely pricked up when you said, which not? which patients are not going to benefit. Because of course, that's the problem, isn't it? If you look at over-servicing, particularly in commercially driven healthcare systems, such as the US, and to some extent, even in in Australia, you find that people are being offered things from which they may may not benefit. I mean, I'm not saying that they would be, uh, they are negatively targeted, but they're definitely, there's a doubt in everyone's mind that they won't benefit. And so, being able to identify those patients must be very exciting. Have you seen that being put into practice or, or products that will help us to do that? I, I think with the, um, you know, the genetic markers um, that are starting to become much more commonly used and the bioassays which are um, driving that outcomes, the first one I would quote that sort of probably came onto my horizon uh, some years ago was septin which was the H2 new gene for breast cancer, you know, yeah. certain types of breast cancer. And that one, certainly within the Australian market, was one of those very first ones that then identified, don't bother using this medicine unless you have this particular marker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since then, which was probably, I'm going to say 20, 20 years ago, plus or minus, that has really now expanded into multiple other areas. So I think we we are in the area of uh, of having the technology to start to identify those patient populations. Now that leads to a really interesting conversation with patients because they go in for an assessment. We now have the technology and the bioassays in order to be able to identify. And for some patients, that will be devastating. Old, actually, the therapy we thought that might work won't work for you because you actually don't aren't appropriate for it. And I think as a society and healthcare system, we do actually have to manage the, the ability to say, I'm sorry, we haven't got the medicine. Whereas in the good old days where we just supplied mass populations with therapies, you know, and classic pharmaceuticals, we really didn't know. And we didn't know the science of which patients worked and didn't work. And so populations were treated. Now we have the technology and now we have that opportunity. And that's leading us to different ethical and practical challenges that I think as a society and as an industry, uh, healthcare industry, we need to work through. And I, I certainly don't have the answers, but I definitely see some of the challenges. Yeah, that, that is very, very exciting, Mark. And to talk about this in terms of, you know, your role at Medidata and, and, the, and the company Medidata and what it's, it's doing in this regard, can you say something about that and where you think you are pitching your work so that this world that you're describing, where people are not treated inappropriately, comes to fruition? Sure. Uh, and that, that really is that excitement for me, having joined Medidata about a year ago, being the first employee based in Australia for the company, even though the company's been supporting Australia remotely for many years. But actually having someone physically here, is it was a strategic intent, and I've really enjoyed getting to know the company and the what the company offers. And as the company really is about ensuring best patient outcomes by capturing, interrogating, getting insights of data in a quality-driven manner 
that allow improved clinical decisions to be made for individual patients. So we have a robustness of a system. And now because we've been at it for a number of years, that we have some a huge amount of data. So, you know, the, the big data comment is only as good as our ability to interrogate it and analyze it and understand it and provide those insights to very smart people who are developing the interventions. And so the company works very closely with you know, all majors and lots of smaller companies in order to help them understand the value of their data and to make clinical decisions. Mm-hmm. What's that clinical decisions about? It's about how do we then manage those patients? What is it that the intervention could be done? How should it be tweaked? How do we modify? Can we take the patient on a slightly different journey? How do we make that whole experience of engaging with patients as they seek interventions and submit themselves to clinical trials? You know, remembering that the whole foundation of R&D is that individual patients submit themselves to be experimented on. And I think we underestimate that part of the journey at an individual patient level. And so it's really important from those who are involved in the R&D processes, of which Medidata is, is part of the connective tissue of that, is that we try and support that individual who has committed themselves to R&D, trusted in the healthcare professionals that they're working in, to try and not only get treatment for themselves or be part of an experiment to prove that the treatment will work for themselves and their fellow human mankind to a best patient outcome. I I really think that's a fundamental practical, emotional and ethical piece that we play in as R&D related people. Yes. You know, the question I'm going to ask you, and I ask this all the time, is give me a story, give me an example of something that you are involved in, which speaks to those themes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think a, a good one, which, you know, has been part of that uh, journey is, you know, intervention that provides greater clarity and certainty for the the patient and the the better patient outcome and being part of that journey with organizations who are doing that research being able to capture that data effectively and helping them be able to understand it is a really important component of it and we work with a number of companies, obviously, to allow them to be able to get those insights. And that's very satisfying to be able to be part of that. So if you were looking 10 years ahead, and you'll have been with Metadata 10 years, hopefully by that time, <laughs> and you'll be looking back on the legacy of the last 10 years, as you've been yeah. looking to get to with me today on the legacy of 30 years of your career, what do you hope you will be able to say? Give me sort of a specific thing that you think might have improved because of what you are doing today? Great. I would love us to be able to say that the healthcare system accommodates that data allows personalized treatment to be provided 
on a regular basis to the general population with their specific therapeutic areas mm -hmm. effectively and consistently and that individual patients have a chance to be treated either with medicines that have appeared over the last 10 years that basically we're starting with the research now, or the system will accommodate a much more personalized medicine journey. I would like in 10 years' time to the system to accommodate that individual patients can be treated personally. Okay, so, so I'm a GP and what I would like, a family doctor, and what I would like uh, is to be able to see a patient with depression or asthma or hypertension or gout or whatever happens to be and say, you know, we used to prescribe any of these five different tablets for this condition. And notwithstanding that there's more to the treatment than the medication, I can now prescribe for you this medication, which looking at your makeup will definitely improve the situation. There's no ifs or buts. This will make a difference to you. Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely. Mm. So that in the general population, and, and yes, you as a general practitioner, you're the one which is the first line treatment in the structure of healthcare um, treatment options. And that long may that continue for at least another 10 years, and I'm suspecting I hope that it does. Mm. But you having the tools readily available, both from an assessment point of view, because a lot of this is, is going to be driven by our ability on a practical basis at a general practitioner level to do those assessments quickly, economically, and practically yeah. through um, biomarkers, um, blood tests, analytics, genomics. But those toolkits need to be available to you. Yeah. And then hopefully the medicines that are then around once you've done your assays, because I think that what's going to significantly change is our ability to do the diagnosis yeah. and the right if without the right diagnosis and the right makeup, then actually the intervention comes very secondary. Yeah. And, you know, science has now driven us that we're getting much better at those diagnostic um, capabilities. And you as a primary healthcare giver can manage them and then hopefully have the intervention uh, and the plan that will then allow patients to be treated effectively. Yeah. And much earlier in the trajectory of that illness so that we're not dealing with a diabetic who's about to lose his eyes and his kidneys and have a myocardial infarction, but at a point where we can do something about that condition as it develops, as you say, in general practice, family practice, where you are able to intervene at the point where the patient's first developing that condition. Absolutely. And so that, that heading towards that more preventative view of the world, and we've, you know, we've been talking about it for 30 years, and how do we then operationalize that most effectively? And yet, there will always be interventions once you've done as a primary caregiver your first round of what you might be able to do, which I hope is much more specifically tailored to that individual. There will obviously still be the role of that specialization mm -hmm. as we get to that next level tiering of uh, understanding and therapeutic interventions available. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the relationship between primary caregivers and specialists has to continue to be strengthened. But what you'll be able to provide is a much more clearer diagnostic template mm -hmm. as to what that individual patient looks like mm -hmm. and passing it on to a person that actually you'll probably know is better at dealing with the more specifics, again, rather than a slightly broader brush of sending to a specialist environment. So I do think we will end up with increasingly specialization units more so than we have nowadays. Yeah.
So you're getting the specialist who knows exactly what kind of renal disease and what will impact on that, what will improve that renal disease, but what the general practitioner can do is say, here's this person's genetic makeup, here's their physiological makeup, and over to you to make sure that this is tailored correctly. Absolutely. That's my, that, I would love to see that in 10 years' time. Yeah, that's that's quite a goal. That's quite a goal. But you know, <laughs> knowing you, Mark, I don't think it's out of, it's out of the question. Now, I want to circle back to your grandma, which, uh, which was a lovely story to begin with. What would you like to say to her at the end of your career? What would you say that you've done for the family, for humanity, for the work that she did uh, all those years ago? Now you're going to get emotional on me or I'm going to get emotional on you. That's, yeah. a, that's a tough question. That's unfair yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I think she would be incredibly proud a, ye- a hundred years on to 110 years on to be able to see that through two generations of her stock that the science that has now changed from, you know, and reading her um, surgical book that she won from 1908, you know, published in Sydney, uh, and you think, crikey, we have come a long way. And the ability to treat, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, antibiotics weren't around, you know, 110 years ago. You know, just look at those changes, let alone the ability to um, tailor patients individually. But they did remarkably good things 110 years ago, which in 110 years' time, we will, the stuff we're doing now will look ancient history as well. So as she does her war rounds in 1903 or wherever it was, and she's looking down on that patient, she would be saying, in another hundred years, things would be work out so much better than they're going to work out in the next two or three. I, absolutely. And uh, I hope she's proud for it. And uh, she, uh, she was a strong lady. My mother's been a strong lady. Yeah. I'm confident she would. Mark Glover, you are an inspiration and what you're doing is amazing. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.